Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I had the pleasure of spending time with a really good friend of mine, as well as General Manager of Pearl Valley Golf Estate at Valdivie, Damien Wrigley. I've always believed that some of the great leaders in business are able to find the optimal balance between ambition and humility. Damien is someone who, for me, truly personifies an evolutionary mindset to leadership and culture development. With a solid grounding in both golf operations as well as food and beverage, his insights in this interview are worth their weight in gold. Let's hear his story. I'd love the, the listeners to get some context around your journey, starting out in the golf industry to where you find yourself today here at Paul Valley. Uh, my first sort of taste for hospitality was when I was 16 years old. I worked as a barman at a, at a, at a cocktail bar in, in, in a town called Fishhook. And the name of the bar was called Chessies, and uh, it was kind of like the only bar in Fishwick, and it was a it was like a, a gathering point for all the the high school kids and beachgoers, and it was a very busy place. And that was like kind of my first taste of hospitality. And uh, after that, um, you know, I wasn't really too sure what I wanted to do. Um, so after school, I worked for a guy called Cliff Coombe and repped for three companies, Hold Fast. Southern Ropes, Teal Refrax, and then after that, uh, stumbled into teaching golf uh, for a company I think it was called Playmore Golf, not as it is today, but something similar. And uh, literally, I taught golf at uh, Redham House in Takai area and the American International School, and that was kind of like um, my first sort of in uh, to golf. But I loved golf from as early as 12 years old, and I always knew I wanted to play the game. But uh, after only going to Florida as a kind of like, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Actually, I did. I wanted to be an interior designer. And I remember going home and giving my mom the, the intuition fees for Boston High School of Design and her saying, sorry, boy, that's just too expensive. Single mom and all that. Um, so I went on a workwear program to Boca West in Florida. And that's really where my love for um, the golf industry um, sort of kicked into gear, came back from, from that, got into the restaurant industry, worked uh, at, a, at a restaurant in Cork Bay called uh, Cape to Cuba, rough and ready, but it was a lot of fun, you know the place, <laughs> and then from there, after four years of doing that, I was like, sure, I'm, I'm timing out six days a week, long hours, went on a holiday to Thailand, came back, didn't know what I was going to do. Got a golf. Uh, got a call from Jeremy Linquist, the general manager of Clavelli Country Club. Said, "Hey man, I know you're not working. I need you. Come see me." Started as a golf coordinator, marshalling, starting the field, and uh, the rest is history. Kind of uh, spent ten years at uh, at Clavelli. Worked the way up my way up to uh, director of golf and club operations. I was announced to the members as the incoming general manager. Got a telephone call from uh, Chris Bentley. He said, listen, I'm uh, recruiting for a position in, in, uh, in, um, in uh, Paul at a place called uh, Pill Valley. 
Uh, I think it'll be perfectly suited for you. Can I put your name forward? I interviewed for the job, uh, and uh, I got it. And uh, here I am today uh, as the general manager of Pool Valley. Dave, that's that's quite a story, and it's fascinating that you've had an experience both in food and beverage and and in the golf space, which a lot of the guys that head up golf clubs these days haven't had that benefit of both the, the hospitality or the food and beverage side as well as the golf. Do you, do you think that stood you in good stead now being a general manager of a club that really focuses obviously on golf but significantly on, on the food and beverage side as well? I think it definitely um, has stood me in good stead and it's always looked quite good on the CV but I think more so is the, the, the fact that I've done you know, work uh, and studied through Kamasa as well as the, you know, I'm a PGA uh, professional. I think that's also stood me in, in, in good stead because you have the balance of both, you know, club management and the understanding of the game of golf in all facets and then the food and beverage, which is, as we know, um, a vital part of uh, the income stream at any club. Yeah, look, I mean, I'd love to unpack that further because... I think the grooming of, of any general manager and, and your experiences and your lessons getting to, to where you are now is obviously key. Can you share in in your experiences both at, at Clovelly, I guess, and even before that and now at Pool Valley, any any moments or aha moments or anything that kind of stood out for you as a real leap in terms of growth or anything that kind of really... Uh, where you had to be thrown in the deep end and had to really kind of learn how to, to master that new challenge. Is there any, any time or, or chapter that really stands out? I think um, there's a couple of challenges with food and beverage, Rob. For me, sometimes it's around menu conceptualization. A lot of the times when dealing with head chefs, executive chefs, they create menus that they want to create rather than what uh, members of those clubs want to eat uh, and that's the one and the other is if you go the outsourced route with your food and beverage sector there's always this constant balance between what they want as a, a sort of a tenant and what you want as the as the club operator because obviously you're representing your, your members and their needs and they're representing their business and their turnover so there's always a, a constant struggle with price they normally want to hike it up, you want to keep it as competitive as possible and they want to create menus that they think are trending when in actual fact golf club uh, menus are very different to um, menus that you would experience at you know restaurants outside of the club sector. So I think for me, if you can, I would say always try and do your food and beverage in-house. It just gives you the ability to control the narrative, be part of the 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 menu conceptualizations have that strong relationship with your executive chef and um, it, it fits I think better more harmoniously into the whole offering of for me it's important to have your head professional your director of golf your course superintendent your executive chef and your GM all really being on the same page because essentially that is the golf offering in completeness I think that's a brilliant a brilliant bit of advice for anyone who's kind of not sure on what direction to take in that sense. You, you've also had the benefits um, of working in, in two pretty different types of clubs, if I can put it that way. Um, 
how would you, first of all, how would you describe the difference between Clovelly and, and a place like Pearl Valley? And secondly, kind of, have you, do you think that you've changed your style or your approach given the fact that they're different in terms of how you've operated in the two environments? Absolutely, Rob. They are like polar opposites. I mean, Clovelly is a traditional hidden gem in, in the Silver Mine Nature Valley, opened in 1932, originally owned by Gus Ackerman, taken over from Raymond. It's very much a member, member-run member club uh, with a committee, a um, lot of rounds, high traffic. Um, it almost, it's, it stands still almost. It's timeless. It's uh, you know, for things to happen there, it takes time, a lot of, uh, you know, meetings, a lot of committee meetings, you know, it's committee run to a degree, so you've got to get the treasurer by and the club captain by and you've got to sell it to your membership, whereas uh, Pull Daly is, um, it's like a, it's a fast pace, it's, uh, it's always keeping abreast with industry trends, it's, it's a, it's a five-star sort of uh, premium destination, so there's high expectations to, to always deliver premium. Um, so that comes at a price uh, in both um, staff payroll and also operational expenses, and uh, it's also developer-owned, so it's, it's privately owned. So our committee here is, 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 is advisory, so literally it's uh, working closely with the board of directors, the shareholders, and um, I find things here happen very quickly. Uh, if you go to the board with a good idea or a good concept, uh, if there's buy-in uh, at that meeting, it's literally fast action, fast rollout. Um, I, I like both. Both have something for them. I like What I like about Pearl Valley is it's, uh, you know, everything you need, you, you can get if you're motivated properly. So there's no, there's no excuse not to deliver. Uh, the relationship here with members is very different to a, to a, a Clavelli. A Clavelli, it, it almost felt like the membership base was an extension of you. They were like your family. Whereas here, you know, they're almost at arm's length. Um, they see you as, as a general manager that is here to do a job, to perform a function, make sure that their investment is protected, their course remains within the top five of the country, and that's it. You know, everything must work. Uh, there's no, um, there's uh, no forgiveness for anything less. Whereas, uh, yeah, Clavelli was uh, was a lot more relaxed, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a good learning, good learning experience for me. It was a safe club to work at. Um, being personally mentored by Raymond Ackerman was uh, was amazing, uh, and you know I learned a lot there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean you've explained it comprehensively there, and it's it's clear to see the the differences. One of the things, having known you for quite a while, is that you've always built an immense amount of respect, both in the industry, but as well as the people that you've worked with and managed over the time. And what I what I admire a lot about you is that you've you've never had to take a authoritarian kind of approach to how you do things. You know, you you get people to to kind of follow you because they choose to follow you rather than feeling like they have to. Is that just part of your makeup in terms of personality? Is it just how you've always been? Is it was it a, a conscious decision to take that approach? Just talk to us a little bit about you know how how that has been part of your makeup. Sure. Um, for me, I'm not a I'm not a um, I don't like conflict. I mean, I'll always try and um, you know work. I'm a problem solver. 
I'm a strategic thinker, I'm a visionary. Um, so for me, I like to get buy-in from, um, from my team. It irritates me if people don't want to come on board and it's almost like I go out of my way to try and convince them to come on board because I understand the, um, the value of, of, of team buying because uh, at the end of the day, you know, you're only as successful as um, you know, your weakest link and if, if you get total buy-in and people you know, like what you're selling, they like what you're putting on the table, that's a win for me. Uh, I feel that I've always tried to, in work, um, be consistent in the decisions that I make, be consistent in how I treat people and uh, I like um, a management style that's more, more toward the leadership uh, style than the managerial style. Um, and uh, I like to take the, the longer approach. You know, I like to look into the future and, and, and pave the way. Um, so yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate in that I've got to work with some amazing people. Uh, when I first started at Pill Valley, yeah, it, uh, it needed a lot of work. It was a very fragmented, broken team. Um, so it's taken me you know, almost five years to build a team around me that I feel like can, I can really take Pill Valley to the, to the future and to the next level. And uh, it takes time, it takes a lot of commitment, a lot of energy. Um, but the rewards, uh, when you look back, you know, it's, uh, it's very fulfilling. Mm. Yeah, you've certainly built an amazing, um, amazing team here at Pill Valley, just in terms of good people, good human beings. That's... I think complement your style and complement, I guess, you know, you always look for people who complement your, your weaknesses in a way and may make the team as a whole strong. I, I'm curious in, in that sense to know how, how do you go about bringing in new people, you know, into, into the team? Do you look for something specific? Is it, you know, is it a very conscious decision to bring in a certain type of person into Pearl Valley or... You know, yeah, just speak to us a little bit about how that process works. Yeah, for me, I think over the years, um, you know, when I was sort of a little bit younger in, in, in management or sort of almost like less experienced, I used to look at the CV and I was impressed by skill set. And, um, you know, over the years, I learned that skill set meant nothing. Personality, attitude meant way more. Um, so in, in the last sort of, I would say, four years, um, I've really been hiring more for, for attitude uh, and whether I see you know, those individuals as, as being right for the culture uh, of the club and uh, I think recruitment is a massive part of, of the success of any business and it's something that's quite, quite easily overlooked. So we developed uh, together with HR um, almost a new way of recruiting you know, we wouldn't ask, we, we, we moved away from asking the traditional where do you see yourself in five years sort of thing. But, and that's, that's kind of, it's worked. I mean, every now and again, you know, you get someone that interviews very well and you're like, wow, this is a good fit. And you know, Three months down the line, you're like, Phew, okay, I didn't see that. And, you know, they don't last. But, um, yeah, recruitment is uh, very important. And, uh, yeah, attitude, hire for attitude. Mm. Yeah, I can't attest to that enough. I think there's, uh, they say that the, the CV is the greatest work of fiction in, in the modern working world, which I tend to agree with to some extent, you know. Um, but, you know, unpacking that a little bit further in terms of building a culture and I think creating an environment where people feel like they can 
you know, reach their potential or they can express themselves, whatever the, the, the ambitions of that person are. I think you've done an amazing job of that here at Pearl Valley. It's not an easy thing because there's often challenges that come day in and day out that, that detract from your culture or what you want people to feel. How have, how have you guys managed this whole uh, pandemic and, and the challenges that have come with it? And, and I mean, it's been amazing. You guys have got still such a strong, resolute team, uh, albeit a smaller team, with which many companies have, have had to do, but still maintain a great experience, a great value proposition. Any, any, any things that you can share in terms of what you guys are focused on to achieve that in this time? Yeah, Rob, good, good question. Um, for me, I think a lot of it kind of happened as a result of us becoming smaller, um, with us not being able to to retain, you know, our full staff uh, complement uh, pre-COVID, and um, what happened over those sort of hard lockdown months is, you know, we we instantly had to learn how to conduct um, business virtually um, so we shifted to teams and zoom and you know as a as a as heads of department we were in probably more contact through that lockdown than we were in, in typical day-to-day um, -day business which really allowed us to solidify okay first of all what's going on what is a pandemic I mean we haven't been here before um, no international no tourism in, in, in the Western Cape that's a massive knock okay how do we how do we go from being kind of so reliant on international to now having to basically be sustainable with a local only market and you know 50 60 percent missed off so it, we had to get out the box we had to talk and um, you know as a as a GM uh, you feel vulnerable at a time like that because you don't have the answers but you are looked at to have the answers you looked at to be positive everything's going to be okay when you know you, you put your head in your pillow at night, you're like, what the heck am I going to do? And um, that was the best thing ever because it allowed me to show my vulnerability but in a, but in a safe way that made you know, staff around me feel comfortable to come up with ideas and solutions. And I think that's kind of what's, what's made us stronger. Mm. And uh, you know, a lot of what we built over those, those months has now formed the framework of... of of the team dynamic now. Yeah, I think that just to emphasize that point that you mentioned there about being, I guess, being happy to, to not have the answers and tap into the insights or perspectives of um, a solid team is, is really, you know, bringing the potential of the team to the fore. Sort of that old mentality of the, of the boss always had the ideas and always had the way forward. Yeah. Certainly doesn't seem to, to be the case anymore. Um, and nothing like a pandemic to really bring out the the true potential of your team when you really need it, I guess. So, yeah, well done for doing that. I think it's the results speak for themselves, and it's it's amazing to see um, a golf club and a golf experience like this actually move forward in difficult times, you know, and be able to to create the experience that you still create with so many fewer staff, um, whether it's whether it sets a precedent for the way forward, who knows, but I think it's shown everyone what can be done with, with less resources. You're, you're a golfing man and you're, you're a golfing nut, I think, like myself. Um, I'd love to pick your brain on, on the golf side of things and 
and ask you what what's your opinion on on where the game is going from an amateur perspective um you know there's a lot of talk at the moment around technology and all these things and that the ball's going too far and that the pros need to be pulled back what what's your view on on the experience for the amateur and and what they should be allowed to and not be allowed to do on the on the golf course well i'm going to break it i mean that's quite a diverse question i mean it's I'm going to break it into two parts. I'm going to talk purely where, okay, three parts. Where the where where the game of golf is now is in a very exciting place. It's in a it's experiencing growth spurts all around the world. Record round numbers being played. Um, it's a it's a safe environment. It's a it's great to be out in nature. It's it's something that you can tag on to to travel something you can do with your children with your wife it's just a, a wonderful networking um, sport it's it's incredible on the amateur side i think for me whatever's going to make amateur golfers enjoy the game the most do it if it means giving them 300 meter drives if it means letting them wear the coolest shoes and clothes with wild and wacky materials if it gets participation up do it on the professional side, um, I would say what's probably going to happen, Rob, is if traditional golf courses that have stood the test of time are being compromised as a result of technology, uh, whether it be clubs, balls, etc., I think what will probably happen is similar to a Formula One type scenario where there will be um, kind of a more neutral golf ball or golf clubs will be tune down a little bit or something just to to bring them back a little bit um, but having said that even with all the extra length and, and everything that's going on um, there's been courses that have been put forward for US Opens and Open Championships that have showed that you know they're still difficult um, so yeah it, golf's, golf's in, in, in a great place it's uh Traction is, is, is big. Um, yes, it's a little bit difficult to learn, uh, and it takes a bit of commitment, but uh, if you make it fun and engaging, you know, we've seen good numbers um, coming through our new membership programs, our junior academy, and uh, yeah, no, we, I think, golf's, yeah, um, looking up. I'd love to pick your brain on, on that what you mentioned there just briefly on, on the Junior Academy, you guys have done amazing work here cultivating a wonderful program for, for the juniors. Just give the listeners some insight into that and how it's come to be what it is today. So when I started here, we, we we'd outsourced all our instruction on the golf side and um, Ray Niersling, one of our shareholders and marketing director, we always said we wanted to take it in-house. And uh, we waited for the right time when, they, when our previous uh, instructor's contract came to to the end, we didn't renew it, and we took it in-house. Uh, we created the Pool Valley Golf Academy and also the Junior Elite Program. Uh, we compiled a very specific offering to residents as kind of like a trial base. We weren't quite sure. We're still feeling it through, uh, but we, we're almost two years into it now. We've got 24 kids enrolled in our Junior Elite Program. Um, they do the TPI um, they do a number of um, on-course sessions, range sessions, mental sessions with psychologists. Uh, we've got um, 
you know, Richard Sterney and Henny Otto, um, yeah, on, on site that help them sometimes. Uh, we've got um, parents who, who are involved, um, and uh, we're starting to see massive um, dividends being paid through now with uh, the way that they're competing in, in the Boerland events. Um, you know, they, they're playing in the, uh, the Premier Leagues and are you know, doing really well. So as a feeder program, it's, uh, it's been exceptional. And uh, from the junior elites that we have, I wouldn't be surprised if two of them, maybe three of them, you know, go all the way to definitely collegiate golf and ultimately pro circuit golf. Um, it's, it's amazing to see. Yeah, that's so, so awesome to hear that um, th there are more of these junior academies coming up because it's just remarkable what our country has been able to produce given the number of golfers that we have. Um, I think we had like seven or eight players in the top 100 in the world now, yeah, something to that. It's, it's unbelievable. What, what, do you, what do you put that down to? I mean, is that, you know, I think we had a, just over 100,000 golfers in the, in, in the country. I mean, that's minuscule. I think Germany is 600 or 800,000. You've got places uh, with far more amateur golfers and far fewer uh, guys reaching those heights that our players have. What do you think it is? Do you think it's, it's, it's a combination of things or something specific about South Africans are tough. They've got grit. They've got drive. Um, you know, some of the golf courses that some of the best players in the world grew up playing are definitely not um, USGA spec top manicured courses they you know they can play from from stones they can play from you know wherever they're going to get the ball in the hole um, there's also a great uh, camaraderie amongst the South African players it's almost like a you know like a mentorship um, group, like a alumni group that basically you know are there to you know coach and, and, and train the youngsters coming through I mean look at uh, the role that you know Gary players played in, in, in Garrick's career you know he's always been there and um, you know if you look at like the likes of Louis and Brandon I mean they're just incredible Ernie Retief it's just it's just this pedigree this line of of good player after good player you know and uh, I think they they, they, they they definitely help each other uh, but it's it's incredible to see I don't I don't know what you can really if you can sum it down to one thing but all I can say is it's impressive yeah it truly is it's um I think you're spot on in terms of that uh, hardness, resiliency, etc. that we have here. Uh, just some amazingly talented sportsmen in general, actually, if you look across the sporting, sporting codes. Um, in terms of the, you know, the, the events that, that you've been to or that you watch and, and see on TV and things like that, what, what for you is the, the absolute pinnacle uh, tournament event out there that exists in the, in the golfing world? Is one or just one? It's going it's to be between the Ryder Cup and the Masters, obviously. Um, I'm going to probably have to say the Masters, just because there's nothing like it. Um, the prep into that golf course, you know, the, the the pedigree of player that it attracts is just mm. second to none. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it seems to be the only place or the only thing you watch really that. Um, it looks amazing on TV, and then they say, obviously, when you go there, it's it exceeds your expectations. So it's uh, I can only imagine the the level of sophistication and attention to detail that must be no, incredible in every. 
I think I don't know if it was Mike Liemes that was telling us. I think he worked uh, he worked a tournament and he was always one of his mates as the, the manager at the time. And he was saying the the the, the tension to detail is second to none like five days training on how to clean a toilet and crowd control and uh, merchandising and you, you know it's just there's no stone unturned it's like incredibly organized um, and it's just it's just the whole sort of um, you know the the suspense building up to the event you know the drive down to the clubhouse the, the players dinner you know the, what I like is that it's it's almost remained timeless from when it first began to now. You know, they haven't changed a lot, but yet it's still relevant and it's still very much a part of, 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 of where golf is now. I think you're spot on there. You know, what's, what's amazing is that they've kept the traditions or kept the, the core of it, as you say, but in, in the technical advancements or the technology, for example, I don't know if you saw the most recent app that they have, but you can watch every single player's shot of, of every single hole, yeah. um, which is incredible. And, and just those kinds of things, which they seem to be always setting the tone on how they, how they do it. But the other one that you mentioned, which I, I absolutely love as well, is, um, is the Ryder Cup. And I think many people will agree it's just incredible to watch. Uh, I want to bring or connect the dots between the, the team dynamic that is you know, the successful Europeans and, and looking at it to, to running a, a golf club and, a, and an operation, you know, the Europeans always seem to be better than the sum of their parts. They always seem to outperform, which on paper, the Americans being the better team, as it were. I mean, there's a lot of talk around the culture and there's a lot of talk around um, the fact that they enjoy each other's company and things like that. But what do you think, having watched the, the tournament and the many iterations of it, what, do you have any personal opinions on, on why the Europeans seem to be able to be so much better, even though on the world rankings they, you know, they're not seen as being as good as individual players? For me, for me, the Europe, the European team always, I don't know, for me, it, it just feels like there's so much more passion and heart. Um, throughout the team whereas on the American side it's almost like they're a bunch of individuals that have come together for a team event mm -hmm. uh, I also feel that the, the Europeans play for more than just their country they play for Sevi, they play for the past greats they play for their mothers their sisters their fathers it, it, I don't know it's just something about them Europe is a it's just an incredible like I don't know, it's just it's just exciting. Yeah. America is kind of like they're great players. They they clinical and they're perfectionistic, and they've got every every uh, you know piece of clothing is perfectly embroidered with the flag in just the right place. And you know they they've, they've ticked every box. You know they're as ready as can be. But there's a underlying sort of X factor that that Europe seems to have over them. Um, but it's one of those things you can't quite place it. But it's it's like listening to American commentary, when like at a PJ event, and listening to European commentary, on the European tour event. I prefer the European tour commentary. It doesn't put me to sleep. It's uh, it's witty. It's it feels like they're in the living room with you. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
the American commentary seems like a dissection of play. It's it's yeah. it's kind of the same thing. I love that answer. It's that it's that sort of you can't put your finger on it, but it's that heart. It's that sort of just like that, that feel. When, out, man, when was it that? Mm-hmm. Uh, when Sevilla just passed that way, I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, there were a couple of, uh, well, not many dry eyes in the uh, in the crowd or in the um, in the team. I think after that happened, I think Oli was the the captain then. Yeah. Olafarbo was the captain. Incredible. Incredible. Um, Never forget that. I remember Rose pointing up to the to the skies at one point. Um, it, yeah. There's. I, I love your, that answer. It's just there's so there's such an amazing narrative behind the the Europeans. There's a story playing for, for greater than just yourself. And maybe that is the answer. You know, the, the, the Americans have become so accustomed to playing for themselves week in and week out and their own world ranking and their own, you know, strokes gained or whatever you want to look at versus the, the European team, which is just so... It's just... It's, it's about... It, when you watch it, it's, it's like watching more than golf. It's watching a, a, a true story unfold with them. Um, and it's... I think if, if the answer was any more apparent, I think the, the Americans probably would have copied it by now. Yeah, so, sure. so, they, so that's probably why it's quite difficult to, to understand. But um, Damien, in, in closing, I, I also wanted to, to just touch, um, well, I guess ask you the, the question around, you know, looking forward and looking ahead into to where things go are going from here. Do you think that that what COVID has done and the impact that it's had is going to be something that is uh, a precedent set going forward in terms of how clubs run and the changes? Or do you think that, that things will revert back to largely what they were like before, before the pandemic? I'd like to say that, you know, what the pandemic has taught us and shown us and the, the changes to our approach to particularly golf, golf the golf business will stick and remain I would uh, probably be wrong that most likely we'll run back to, you know, internationals. We'll start charging more again. We'll forget about our locals. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but um, we should remain as we are and we should appreciate our South African business and we should work in collaboration with each other all the time not just when we need each other. Um, I think there will be some clubs that will try and, 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 and keep um, you know, that approach going for as long as possible, but the, the, human, the human race are they're a strange bunch. Mm-hmm. They're quick to forget. They, 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 they want easy. They want um, you know, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, for, from our side, I mean, we've, I mean at, at board level, we've said that, you know, let's be sustainable now. Let's adjust our business model so that, you know, we, we're still profitable without international travel. And when it does return, you know, let's, let's view that as, um, as, as profit. But uh, without having to hike their rates to, you know, the rates that they were and... The, you know, without the restaurants having to, you know, charge what they were and uh, the hotels, etc. But, uh, you know, for so long it was such a massive part of driving our economy that, you know, we got so used to it. And I think if it was to return, um, you know, we might go back there again. I hope not, Rob. Yeah, it's difficult. It's so difficult to say. 
given given the uncertainty. But but I think it's uh, again it shows the ability to adapt. Uh, you know, obviously here at Pearl Valley, but you know in the golfing sense as well. It's been lovely to see the degree of communication and collaboration between clubs and between general managers. It's been exceptional, and also between the PGA, the Club Managers Association of South Africa, Golf RSA. Mm-hmm. I mean, they exist, but they never really speak. Mm-hmm. The pandemic got them speaking. Uh, now that golf's kind of back up again, you know, they're not speaking uh, as much as they should. And they were better, it was better for the game when they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but people, uh, you know, organizations, they go back into their lanes. Uh, I yeah. suppose it's just how it is. It's, it's a good point, you know, uh, the human condition is that we typically are reactive rather than proactive and I guess that's that's one of those instances where we've gone back to what we used to. But yeah, hopefully hopefully the powers that be will, will see the value of what it brought and, and start to collaborate a bit more because I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I think there's huge value for the industry at large for those bodies to be uh, collaborating and, and synergizing more. But Dame, just to end off with, um, as I always like to do at the end of our, our conversations to, to acknowledge you, I think one of, the, one of the things that I've learned the most from you in our time of working together has been the fact that, as I said earlier, you've stayed very true to who you are as a person and how you've managed and led people. I think a lot of managers and leaders, when they get into a position, they change who they are and therefore don't stay true to themselves. So I, I, I admire very much how you've gone about that and stayed so true to, to yourself. I have to, I, I, would I have to credit my wife for that. <laughs> and I'm sure a couple of brownie points will come with, uh, with that as well. But, but, I, but I think just, just that and, and, and the fact that whilst things have never been necessarily easy, um, how you've run towards the challenge and how you've managed to build a team here, which in all my years at Pool Valley and experiences has never been better. So I think from an industry point of view, you can be incredibly proud of what you've achieved. And um, I couldn't more wholeheartedly wish you everything of the best in the months and the years that come. And no doubt when all is said and done, um, much like we look at the likes of a Jeff Claus or a Mike Leomace, et cetera, et cetera, as, as the doyens of the industry, we will do the same for you when you one day have much more grey hair and decide to, to hang up the, the boots, as it were. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Appreciate the time. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.